Hello and welcome to the Anishinaabe History Podcast. I'm Chris Waite. In honor of Black History Month, I'd like to begin by talking about Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was born in February of 1817, or perhaps 1818, or so he figures. This discrepancy is because he was owned as a slave. He was not told what year he was born. Also, because he was born a slave, he was not told or legally allowed to be told even what month it was. Slaves were purposefully kept uneducated. That was back in the slave days of North America. I say North America because both Canada and the United States used slaves. Canada, as a colony of Britain, abolished its slave trade officially many years before the United States abolished slavery. But I'm getting ahead of myself. When Frederick Douglass was about seven years old, he was bought by a slave owner to be a guardian and playmate for the slave owner's son. Douglas was purchased by several slave owners by the time he was a teenager. And also by the time he was a teenager, he had witnessed many abuses and crimes committed by slave owners and slave overseers. Douglas witnessed starvation and black people around him being beaten for perceived impudence by the slave owners and slave overseers. Frederick Douglas witnessed slave owners and slave overseers beat his brothers and cousins. His grandmother had generations of children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren taken from her only to become slaves of slave owners. American slave owners. By the time Frederick Douglass was a teenager, the trail of tears had begun. And by the time Frederick Douglass was 16 years old, he had been physically beaten many times by slave owners and slave overseers. They tried breaking his spirit by breaking his body, but they couldn't. Frederick Douglass persevered. He even stood up to a slave overseer and fought the reprehensible man toe-to-toe. The overseer was unable to whip Frederick Douglass into submission. And although Frederick Douglass remained a slave, that particular slave overseer never dared bother Frederick Douglass again. In other words, Although Frederick Douglass was still a slave after his fight with the overseer, he nonetheless had garnered a lot of personal power. He escaped from Maryland, where he was considered a slave, to New York City, where he became a free man. In his twenties, Frederick Douglass tried to teach other black people how to read. His learning sessions were broken up multiple times by slave overseers who forbade black people from learning to read and write. Such was the law in the United States of America at the time. Slavery ruled the land. The slave trade was the economic engine for the European superpowers for over 300 years. This is why Europe has held economic power for so long. However, slowly over time, each European country enacted legislation that abolished slavery. For example, in 1807, Britain passed an act making the British Atlantic slave trade illegal. Spain ended their involvement in the slave trade in 1811. Sweden did the same in 1813. In 1814, the Netherlands abolished slavery. France banned slave trading in 1817, but the ban did not take effect until 1826. 
France didn't abolish slavery outright until 1848. In 1819, Portugal abolished slave trading north of the equator. Forty years later, in 1858, Portugal would officially end slavery, although now the freed slaves were compelled into 20-year apprenticeships. To me, it just sounds like slavery under another name. By 1833, Britain had passed another legislative act, the Abolition of Slavery Act. This act ordered the gradual abolition of slavery in all British colonies. In 1851, Brazil abolished slave trading, but didn't outlaw slavery until 1888. And it wasn't until the 20th century, in the year 1948, that the United Nations adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that states, in part, quote, No one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Slavery and the slave trade shall be prohibited in all their forms. End quote. It took a civil war to bring an end to slavery in the United States. The war began in 1861 and ended in 1865. However, it took a full two years for the Northern Army to free the last slaves from the final plantation holdout. That brings us basically to 1867, the year Canada maintains as its date of establishment. During the American Civil War, military units in the United States Army were segregated. Black men and Native American men were placed in regiments known as the United States Colored Troops. The Colored Troops regiments were disbanded in the autumn of 1865. After the American Civil War, America set its sights on winning the West. If you watch an old cowboy movie, and there are characters who used to be soldiers for the Union or Confederate armies, but are now sheriffs or outlaws or wealthy landowners or gunslingers, and they all have conflict with the Comanche or Apache, then you are likely in the Indian Wars period of North America. Buffalo soldiers were established by an act of Congress in 1866, a year after the end of the Civil War. The soldiers got the nickname from Native people who saw the black men on horseback. The native people saw the black men on horseback and called them buffalo soldiers. It reminds me of the legend of the centaur in Europe. Is it to you I owe my life, Newton? That's me! That's me! Well, not only me. Not only me. There are many claims to the coining of the term Buffalo Soldier. I'll read what it says on Wikipedia. Quote, Sources disagree on how the nickname Buffalo Soldiers began. According to the Buffalo Soldiers National Museum, the name originated with the Cheyenne Warriors in the winter of 1877. The actual Cheyenne translation being Wild Buffalo. However, writer Walter Hill documented the account of Colonel Benjamin Grierson, who founded the 10th Cavalry Regiment, 
recalling an 1871 campaign against Comanches. Hill attributed the origin of the name to the Comanche due to Grierson's assertions. The Apache used the same term. We called them buffalo soldiers because they had curly, kinky hair like bisons, a claim supported by other sources. Another possible source could be from the Plains Indians, who gave them that name because of the bison coats they wore in winter. The term buffalo soldiers became a generic term for all black soldiers. It is now used for U.S. Army units that trace their direct lineage back to any of the African-American regiments formed in 1866. In September 1867, Private John Randall of Troop G of the 10th Cavalry Regiment was assigned to escort two civilians on a hunting trip. The hunters suddenly became the hunted when a band of 70 Cheyenne warriors swept down on them. The two civilians quickly fell in the initial attack, and Randall's horse was shot out from beneath him. Randall managed to scramble to safety behind a washout under the railroad tracks, where he fended off the attack with only his pistol and 17 rounds of ammunition until help from the nearby camp arrived. The Cheyenne beat a hasty retreat, leaving behind 13 fallen warriors. Private Randall suffered a gunshot wound to his shoulder and 11 lance wounds, but recovered. The Cheyenne quickly spread word of this new type of soldier, who had fought like a cornered buffalo, who, like a buffalo, had suffered wound after wound, yet had not died, and who, like a buffalo, had a thick and shaggy mane of hair. End quote. It's not necessarily an insult to be compared to a buffalo. One of the most memorable leaders of the Sioux Nation was Sitting Bull, otherwise known as Tatanka Yotanka. To the people of the plains, the buffalo, Tatanka, was a sacred animal. Perhaps an analogy can be made between the buffalo and the scarab beetle. What I'm saying is that the buffalo was as sacred to the people of the Great Plains as the scarab beetle was to the ancient Egyptians. I've spoken about buffalo herds in an early episode, episode 2. This is a bit of what I said then. Meanwhile, in the USA, the Americans were living in the post-Civil War era. That war had ended in 1865. Generals Sheridan and Sherman both considered the eradication of the buffalo as the critical line of attack. Why? Because the economy of the peoples of the Great Plains depended upon the millions of buffalo that migrated north and south across the continent now known as North America. What did people get from the buffalo? In a word, everything. Fur, sinew, meat, bones, and spirituality. The people of the plains relied on the abundance of the buffalo for everything from subsistence to clothing to religion. By exterminating all the buffalo, the American military endeavored to break the backbone of the indigenous economy of the Great Plains. Destroying the enemy's economy was a scorched earth policy that the Union had used against the Confederates during the Civil War. In 1864, General Philip Sheridan was in the Shenandoah Valley doing just that. It is known historically as the Burning. The Shenandoah Valley was a breadbasket for both armies and it had been occupied by both sides of the war 
for the previous few years. Sheridan's burning of the valley was to be a final statement on the valley's productivity. It is important to know that the buffalo were not overhunted by Aboriginal people. The buffalo were extirpated by Americans to destroy the economy of the Aboriginals who depended upon the buffalo so that the westward expansion of the Americans could continue. It is also important to know that it wasn't just the military exterminating the buffalo. So-called hunters and sportsmen were encouraged to kill as many buffalo as possible. Businessmen could even go on escorted hunts with military officers. Within a single hunt, hundreds of buffalo might be killed, with only some of the meat, such as the tongues, being taken to eat. The rest of the carcasses were left to rot. In this way, just over a few decades, millions of buffalo dwindled to mere thousands, to the brink of extinction. The greatest destruction of the buffalo herds came after the American Civil War, because the Americans could now focus their forces on fighting the Indians. The buffalo was a sacred animal because it was the foundation, the backbone of the cultures of the plains people. Food, shelter, clothing, equipment, and the knowledge systems attached to all those things were encapsulated within the buffalo. That is why it is a sacred animal. But there's more to it than that. The buffalo herds had an important ecological role to play on the Great Plains. Their dung was fertilizer for the grass itself and for the microbes within the soil. The fur of the buffalo not only protected people from the harsh winters, but also provided fiber for birds' nests. The encroachment of wagon trains, coupled with the widespread and purposeful destruction of buffalo herds, was an ecological disaster. The wagon trains, simply by not sticking to the treaty regulations of staying within the width of the road, broke treaties. When treaties were considered broken, retaliation was considered justified. Ignorance, greed, and genocidal ambitions destroyed the buffalo and destroyed the people who depended on the herds. This was the time of the so-called Indian Wars. But in reality, the Indian Wars is a misnomer to the forced relocation and genocidal ambitions of the colonial nations of Britain, France, Holland, Spain, as well as Canada and the United States of America. Indian Wars is a collective term for the many different wars between the colonial nations such as the United States and the various First Nation cultures across Turtle Island. Here is a list of some of the wars that were fought as part of the overall campaign of genocide known as the Indian Wars. Pequot War, 1636-1638 Pontiac's War, 1763 The Cherokee-American War, 1776-1795 The Ohio War, 1785-1795 The War of 1812 The First Seminole War 1816 to 1819, Black Hawk's War, 1832, the Second Seminole War, 1835 to 1842, the Third Seminole War, 1855 to 1858, the Dakota War, 1862, Red Cloud's War, 1866 to 1868, Wounded Knee, 1890. This list is not exhaustive. 
The Comanche-Mexico War was a series of conflicts that went on between 1821 and 1870. At this same time, the Comanche people were also at war with the Texans. The war between the Texans and the Comanche went on from 1820 to 1875. Throughout this campaign of aggression against indigenous populations, many refugees were created. Many of these refugees were hunted down as they tried to escape to safer lands. For example, the Nez Perce fought a so-called retreating war against the Americans in 1877. The Nez Perce War against the Americans had its beginnings in 1855. In 1855, a treaty was signed between the Nez Perce and the Americans. Among the items included within the treaty was the prohibition of white settlers being on the newly formed reservation lands without Nez Perce permission. However, in 1860, gold was discovered in the reserved Nez Perce territory. After the gold was discovered, 5,000 Americans rushed onto the reservation to get at the gold. By going onto the reservation without permission of the Nez Perce, the Americans had broken the terms of the 1855 treaty. Over the next few years, the Americans would encroach deeper into Nez Perce reserved lands. The Americans cried out for more land for their explorations and exploits, pushing the Nez Perce onto smaller and smaller parcels of their own traditional lands. Tensions increased. By the summer of 1877, some of the Nez Perce had had enough of being forced off of their own territory. The group of irate Nez Perce attacked and killed a group of white settlers against whom they had held a grievance. In response to the attack on the white settlers, the American military mobilized a force of 130 men. American General Howard mobilized the force to punish the Nez Perce for their attack and to push the Nez Perce onto another, smaller reservation. As the military moved in for their punitive campaign, the Nez Perce headed east from their traditional homelands. The battles between the Nez Perce and the Americans took place over a great distance. The Americans pursued the Nez Perce nearly 1,900 kilometers over the course of a few months. The Nez Perce was composed of 250 warriors, 500 women and children, and 2,000 head of livestock. The Nez Perce almost got to the Canadian border, but were boxed in by multiple American regiments. The Nez Perce were forced to surrender. After their surrender, the Nez Perce were marched to Oklahoma. They were not allowed to return to their traditional homelands until 1885. Sometimes massacres occurred over the supposed loss of domestic livestock. For example, the Cypress Hills Massacre occurred in what is now southern Saskatchewan. The Cypress Hills Massacre occurred on June 1, 1873. Descriptions of the massacre differ depending on which source you have. For example, in the book by A.H. Jackson entitled 150 Years of Canada, Year-by-Year Year Fascinating Facts, 
the Cypress Hills Massacre is allotted a short paragraph. The paragraph reads as follows, quote, The Cypress Hills Massacre of June 1, during which 30 or more natives died in a conflict involving wolf hunters, whiskey traders, and a cap of Assiniboine people in the region of what is now Battle Creek, Saskatchewan, increases the urgency for recruitment and deployment of the newly formed NWMP. End quote. NWMP is short for Northwest Mounted Police, which became the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. What Jackson wrote was a gross understatement. It is an understatement because there may have been as many as 80 people who were murdered in that massacre, not 30. Author Candace Savage describes the Cypress Hills Massacre of the Nakoda Village by American wolf trappers in the following way in her book entitled A Geography of Blood. Quote, The trouble began around noon on June 1, 1873, when one of Farwell's men got in a drunken tizzy about a stolen horse. Although the animal was quickly recovered, it had just wandered off, voices were raised, shots were fired, and things flared from bad to worse. While some of the traders looked on in horror, others, led by two hard-case wolfers, John Evans and Tom Hardwick, who later became a Montana sheriff, rushed out with their repeating rifles to take cover in the bushes and fire into the Nakoda camp. Undone by adulterated drink, armed only with muskets and arrows, the Nakoda were unable to defend their exposed position. What had looked for a while like a battle, our guide said quietly, soon became a horrible massacre. By day's end, the violence had claimed the lives of one wolfer, a French-Canadian named Ed Lagrasse, and somewhere between 15 and 80 Nakotas, a variance that obscures the fate of many women, children, infants, and elders. When the guns finally fell silent, the attackers swarmed the Nakoda campsite, helping themselves to anything of value and setting fire to the rest. In one lodge they came upon Hunkajuka, or Little Soldier, the chief who, a few weeks earlier, had led his people across the plains to the safety of the hills. One of the wolfers raised his rifle and shot Hunkajuka at point-blank range while another busily mutilated the corpse of an old man named Wankantu, and yet another rounded up five women and took them captive. That night, four of the women were raped repeatedly inside Solomon's trading post, while the severed head of Wankantu looked mutely down from the top of a lodgepole in the smoldering Nakoda camp. End quote. The Nakoda, like the Nez Perce, were refugees seeking safety from American aggression. Sadly, they were unable to escape American aggression and met their fate near the Canadian border, the so-called Medicine Line. Sitting Bull, too, tried to escape American aggression on the Canadian side of the border. But that's another story. It is important to remember that the 1800s were not only dominated by the slave economy, but it was also the time of the Trail of Tears. This is why it was called the Wild Wild West. 
The Indian Wars officially ended in the 1890s, although in 1918 there was conflict against the Yaqui Indians. After the Indian Wars, many treaties were signed between the First Nations that remained and the colonial governments of Canada and America. Many of the treaties were signed with some knowledge of what had happened in other parts of Turtle Island. In other words, the Moccasin Telegraph spread the message that Indians from all over the continent were being destroyed by the white man. So it would be better to sign a treaty than to face complete annihilation. And I do mean complete annihilation, because there were cultures that were completely wiped out of existence by colonial genocide. For example, the Yahi people of what is now California are known historically to have been whittled down to one solitary person, a man named Ishi, who died in 1916. Now his people are no more. After all the bloodshed of the Civil War and the Indian Wars, America then went to war with the Spanish in 1898. That was a relatively quick war. Then, after the Spanish-American War, America went to war with the Philippines from 1899 to 1902. Buffalo soldiers were involved in all of these wars. Buffalo soldiers were used because the white man wanted the black man to kill the red man. America wanted the land and they were willing to kill for it. Native people, like Geronimo and the Apaches, were willing to die for it. Those were the good old days. Yeehaw! Mark Matthews, the last surviving Buffalo soldier, died in 2005 at the age of 111 years. Matthews had been born in 1894, a year before the death of Frederick Douglass. Chief Joseph, one of the leaders of the Nez Perce, died in 1904, one year before the signing of Treaty No. 9. That's all for today's episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in the future. I'm Chris Waite, and this has been the Anishinaabe History Podcast.